internet friends, and welcome back to another episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids for our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I swear I haven't used my VR headset for porn. With me is... <laughs> I'm Lindsay, and I've got spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle. <laughs> jingle, jangle, jingle. <laughs> uh, uh, and I'm Sarah, and I've had my ass bitten by a pig. <laughs> oh, whoa. Like a literal, a so literal pig. I have, I'm just saving them up so each week I can reveal another bite. That's <laughs> so weird, but I love it. Thank you. This is the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes so you don't have to. Or if you already have, we just make you feel better about yourself. Every week we start on the same wiki page. And then we wander around using clicks or hyperlinks from within the article until we find something that we cannot stop reading. Usually this means that we have read about two paragraphs or more. And if that's the case, we are beholden to present it to you and to each other. This week we started on Starbucks. Yes, Starbucks. Okay. Yeah, Starbucks. Um, where did everybody end up? Well... I ended up on vaccine hesitancy. <gasps> Topical. On the nose. Topical. I love it. On the nose. I'm Very so the excited. Nose. Uh, I, I ended up on Alexander Graham Bell, which I'm sure we all know. Um, mm. But his life was just so fascinating. I, I clicked on him thinking, yeah, I know. I know about him. And I could not <laughs> stop reading. Like, he's fascinating. Um, wow. Yeah. Where did you end up, Lindsay? I ended up on rainmaking. <laughs> rainmaking? <laughs> yeah. Like making a yeah. cloud? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I was shocked. And then I was like, damn it, I'm stuck. I'm so <laughs> stuck. <laughs> and then um, I honestly had this moment where I was like, how did I get here from Starbucks? <laughs> like, anyway. Um, before we before we really dive into any of the good details, we have our question of the week. We do. And this week's question of the week is, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? I'm going to ask Lindsay first this week. Sure. Um, it's, it's convenient that you ask this because I always make sure to tell people around me, just in case any unforeseen circumstances, that if I became a domesticated animal, um, Lindsay food would be um, matar paneer. Mild. Would be what? <laughs> matar is that, paneer. Is that a curry? Yeah. Okay. Mild as well. Mild. Yeah, I can't, I can't really do anything and spicy. What is in that curry? Paneer, obviously. Paneer. Um, a lot of tomatoes and yum. some peas. Yeah. yeah, you got your fruits and your veg in there. Yeah. And some rice. And That's balanced. I would, <laughs> yeah, no, I do think that I would have, I would live a long life as a, as an indoor Lindsay. Indoor <laughs> 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 Lindsay. <laughs> And I, I would I would also like to add that we have a um, internet submission Ooh, for yes. this question as well. I don't know this person's name, but their username is Oh Hi Dare on Twitter. <laughs> oh, oh Hi Dare. Oh Hi Dare. <laughs> so hi. <laughs> uh, their answer is burritos. So much Ooh. so that they got a job in a UK burrito chain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the way to do it. 
That is really awesome. Oh, that's amazing. I almost spat out my water then. <laughs> I too, I too love a good burrito. Yes, it is a great answer. All right. And what about Drew? Drew gave me a little hint before. He said it's oddly specific. You're going to love it. So here we go. Here we go. It's pizza. And here's my thinking. Okay. Because pizza is just bread, tomato sauce, and cheese. Correct? Right. With some well, other stuff. It, but you can add with some other stuff to it. Mm-hmm. So functionally, you can do that with anything. As long as you just have bread, you know, bread, tomato sauce, and cheese on something, it, you can have anything. And so you like, like you want a hot dog, well, you just put some cheese on it and some tomato sauce, and boom, you can have a hot dog. And that would be pizza. I am, I am completely, you know, it, form and function doesn't have to be the shape of a pizza. It could be anything. So, so is I'm this saying like adding pizza. to the, there's soup, salad, and then there's pizza? <laughs> I think I also like there's like some kind of sinister undertone to this answer because I feel like you've somewhere implied the existence of a very specific and malevolent genie who is like ready to grant you a wish and you have thought like every way around any negative consequence. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly what this is because pizza can be anything and I can eat anything because it's pizza I just have to make it with bread cheese and little tomato sauce I can even use ketchup ketchup tomato sauce I win I got it I got <laughs> the best tell answer Chicago how to make oh my pizza. God. <laughs> Chicago just use tomato ketchup you'll be fine oh you get beaten out of Chicago I probably would <laughs> for many reasons. But you couldn't. What about dessert pizza? Because if you had to have the tomato sauce and the cheese, how are you going to well, get your desserts in there? I don't tend to eat desserts, oh, okay. so that's not too, be, not too big of a thing for sticks. me. Not <laughs> yeah, just roll it up, just fucking roll it up, dude. <laughs> just throw some chocolate dessert. on it. Oh, I reckon. I think. I think my answer might top yours, Drew. I think I might. Okay, win. go for it. Go for it. My answer is pie. Just pie, pie because you can have any type of pie you want. You can have a savory pie, right. a sweet pie. You could have a pizza pie. Any type of pie. Anything you stick in a crust and a pastry, it's a pie. And I'm, you know, I'm a vegetarian, and you can still, you know, stick all your veggies in there. You can have mm. apple pie. Make it some fruit. Anything you want, stick it in a pie and it, it's good to go. That's a great, huh. that only works in British countries, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have savory pies? No. Like, we have like meat pot pies? pies and chicken, you know. Well, like we have pie. it, like we have it, but like when you say that, like we know you're British. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and you know, yeah, I like that the that. the overlap between this and Drew's is is calzones. Like that's gonna <laughs> be <laughs> the peacekeeper. <laughs> we did it, calzones are the winner. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> great, great meal. job, everyone. We did it. <laughs> Let's go adjourned. home. We're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If we were in person, I would just stand up and shake your hands right now. I'd be like, good job. Great good job, job, everyone. Good job. Drop the mic. 
All right, good. (laughs) (laughs) We would love to know if you agree with us, though, as well. So please add us on Twitter with what food you would eat for the rest of your life. No consequences. Pretending that health was not an issue. What would you eat for the rest of your life? And you don't have to think of every which way it could go wrong like Drew apparently does. (laughs) (laughs) So who who should go first this week? I reckon Lindsay. I don't think we've had you first in a while. And it's very cloudy outside today where I am in Melbourne. Classic Melbourne weather. And I would love to know how rain is made. Well, artificial rainmaking. Yeah, maybe that'll add a new sense of wonder to a gloomy day. Yeah, and I also don't yeah. want to be depressed with um, anti-vaxxers straight away. <laughs> I do want to be depressed, but, you know, a little light mood and then, and then maybe some anti-vax rubbish can come in. Okay, cool. So I'll go second. I don't think, Drew, I don't think yours is rubbish, though. Oh, I appreciate no, that. No, yeah, we still love you, Drew. <laughs> well, you sound like, you're like, I need to wait before I, like, do something I hate. <laughs> no, 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 no. I just mean I know we're going to hear some things that will frustrate us, and I want to be thinking about fluffy clouds when we do. <laughs> there you go. God. I guess it's rest day for my arms beating the shit out of Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Drew. I'm sorry. No. No. <laughs> you hurt my insides. Oh. <laughs> I'm excited, Drew. I, I'm your friend. Yeah. She's just making up for last week. I'm giving you side eyes right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> well, okay, so so me, then Drew, then Sarah. Okay. That sounds great. So getting right into it. Rainmaking, if you really want to impress your friends or sound sesquipedalian. Yeah. Uh, you could call it pluviculture. Ooh, pluviculture. That could be a really cool store name that sells really overpriced plants. Pluviculture. <laughs> Welcome to Pluviculture. That's so specific. Um, but but just like uh, rainmaking probably implies, this is to create rain or to stave off drought. Um, Apparently, according to the article, they claim that this can also help global warming. But then later, they kind of specify that this has nothing to do with changing the climate of an area, but rather like a one-off, like weather. So this is like altering the weather. Oh, like Mm -hmm. assisting in areas where the climate has, you know, shifted so much that, you know, they could maybe get some rain to an area that wasn't, that isn't having rain. But it can't change the climate, just the, the weather. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, And I also thought it was interesting that one of the reasons they cited for rainmaking would be to increase water levels in areas that use hydropower. Oh, cool. That is very cool. Yeah, I really didn't even think of that, but I guess that's, you know, some people's whole lives relies on that. So um, I thought that was really interesting. But the the actual practice of rainmaking... 
there, I should say practices plural because rainmaking can refer to a few different things. One at Wiki <laughs> really went all out with this one because one of the things they cited was like in the business world, when you're rainmaking, it means that you're making a lot of money. Like Wolf of Wall Street. That. Yeah. yeah. That's quite the umbrella definition. Hey. Oh, oh, I shouldn't have asked. Yeah, shouldn't have asked. <laughs> so there are, I'm going to talk about like three different kinds of rainmaking. So the first one is um, cloud seeding. So <gasps> yes. I don't want to reveal what the other ones are. Uh, first, I'll explain what cloud seeding is. Okay. Um, so this practice was invented in the 1940s. And what's a little bit difficult to gauge about its um, effectiveness is the fact that like when you do a science experiment, you have like your experiment and a control so that you can tell whether or not your experiment really did anything based on what your control, which presumably you didn't touch, um, looks like. So in the practice of rainmaking, the issue is if you have a cloud, you don't know how much rain it's going to produce. Um, so you don't really have a control. So to say the rainmaking practice actually did anything or the cloud seeding actually did anything is kind of a stretch (laughs) because you would Mm -hmm. ask compared to what? And it's like, well, I don't know how much it was going to rain. Um, maybe in, in more modern times, maybe that has been kind of circumvented, but as far as what I could read in the article, um, that's kind of the major drawback. So in a way, this is not an exact science, and I think that there's actually doubt as to whether or not cloud seeding actually works. But if you were to do it, you would take an airplane way up into the clouds, and you would spray either dry ice, silver iodide, or salt powder into the clouds to make them more dense and more heavy and induce rainfall. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. It's kind of a simple concept. Make the cloud yeah. heavier, make it rain. <laughs> um <laughs> What really snagged me, though, was Operation Popeye. (laughs) That's a great name. It's a great name, a horrible thing. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, so the U.S. government, when we were losing the war in Vietnam, the U.S. actually tried cloud seeding in Vietnam as an attempt to extend the monsoon season there <gasps> to slow down vehicles on the ground. Oh, that's evil. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got strong opinions on Vietnam anyway and why it wasn't a great idea. But that is just, that's that's like literally taking it to the heavens. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is, you know, it's kind of in a really roundabout way, it's kind of incredible that that we got our ass kicked so bad that we were brought to our knees <laughs> to the point that we had to resort to, to altering the weather because <laughs> nothing was stopped. Like, I, in a way, oh. like, that. that's the silver lining. A Drew, you should have said A. A, because you're doing the silver in the sky. Ah, I like it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna edit those. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the only example that I could see of a time that this was employed, like in in like a very specific circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, it, it was just very general. I don't know how often or where um, cloud seeding is actually used, um, but that I thought that was really interesting and really fucked up 
Oh, that is really interesting. I wonder what environmental effects it would have if you're putting, you know, what was it, silver iodide? Yeah, silver iodide. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what would that do to the actual, you know, once it came down from the clouds into the ecosystems, how would that affect everything? That's a great Uh, question. I I also wonder, like, nothing is free, right? So Mm -hmm. in a sense, like, who are we taking this would be rain from if we make it rain in one location that's Mm -hmm. true because it obviously builds up over time and if it's you know moving in a certain area you're literally you could be stealing water from a a different place right and if rain typically falls in that other place then presumably a lot of the life there also relies on on the rain so like Mm -hmm. the example i think of is the colorado river where like america has diverged the river so many times that it's just this pathetic trickle by the time it reaches Mexico. Mm. And um, this happened gradually over time. And so like different communities in Mexico that actually relied on this river just slowly got snuffed out because we just kept taking it and taking it and taking it upstream. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, maybe one of the, the brighter uh, spots of this is that there's no real proof that cloud seeding works. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> at least, at least we'll something we can take away from, from the would-be evil powers of, of the government. Woo! Bright sides. On a happier note, um, rain dancing is another form of rainmaking. So, of course, rain dances or rain dancing practices are going to vary extensively depending on what group of people... Um, you are talking about, but they are most commonly found in native peoples in the Southwest United States, um, in like tribes that are um, of indigenous people. They will mm-hmm. most likely be the ones who have rain dancing um, native to their culture. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. all I can think of is appropriation. So I would like to say that people who actually do it because it's part of their their history, you know, usually it's in the Southwest United States. Um, and I, I guess like a common theme throughout rain dances is the use of feathers and turquoise to sort of symbolize uh, air and rain. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool because definitely in a lot of um, desert art or um, Southwest art or like native art, there's a lot of turquoise that's used. I know it's a very important stone for them. So it's kind of cool to like see one of the things that turquoise might represent and that it's rain. And it would be important during a rain dance. That's really, really cool. Hmm. That is very cool. I, a weird fact that I don't didn't really follow up on was that in Texas in 2011, um, a politician asked that the entire state pray for rain <laughs> to end a drought. Was this Ted Cruz? It was not Ted Cruz. Because I wasn't there when there was the massive. Um, the cold front last year and you know pipes were freezing and it was just awful in texas i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure ted cruz said that uh, everyone should pray is this when he went to cancun yes (laughs) yeah he fled (laughs) while people are literally dying from not having access to running water or cooling uh sorry heating systems and he's like we should pray for it while he's you know sitting on a beach with a margarita yeah Good, good. Yeah, this is a We Hate Ted Cruz podcast. A plus. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, but it was not Ted Cruz. Um, I didn't write down the guy's name because I couldn't be fucked. But um, he Fair did enough. also bright. But um, I thought that was kind of weird that Wikipedia put that under rain dancing. Like, I feel like that's not the same thing. But it was <laughs> well, also... That's the rain pray- praying. Uh, anyway, the final uh, form of rain making. I saved the best for last. Okay. This one is dedicated to you, Sarah. <gasps> oh, what's it going to be? Cosmic Orgone Engineering. Oh. Wow. What does that <laughs> mean? So I'm surprised that you don't know what Orgone is being a physicist. I'm a crap physicist. Sometimes. No, no. What, can you, what is the word again? Orgone. <laughs> it's the universal life force. The oh. anti-entropic principle. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I remember. Go on. Let, let, let me speak for the rest of the audience. The what? <laughs> it's bullshit. <laughs> it doesn't exist. It's like the idea of the ether. Yes. Actually, yes. The article specifically mentioned the luminiferous ether, which yes. was another debunked pseudoscience. Yes. Back, so back in the ye old days, before they understood what the hell a universe was, let alone galaxies and space time and all that, uh, you know, awesome stuff we, we kind of understand now. Um, this is for the audience. Uh, there was this idea that everything existed in an ether like a big hot soup of stuff that you just Mm -hmm. existed in and it was everywhere in the universe and ether and the ether could either do good or bad things depending on what was interacting with it um which i think is a fun theory but not so much in the 21st century (laughs) yeah if people are interested i highly recommend looking up the experiments people did to like try to parameterize (laughs) the ether itself (laughs) very interesting um and, and definitely for a good laugh. It is very cool. So at least with the luminiferous ether, you could give them a pass because first of all, badass name. Mm-hmm. And yeah. second of all, it was a super long time ago. Mm-hmm. Cosmic orgone engineering is recent enough that there are photographs of it. And the oh. guy who invented it died in 1957. Oh, okay. So mm. pretty recent. It is pretty recent. Um, but getting into like what it actually is, though. Um, so it's this bullshit idea that there is some... Okay, I, I, <laughs> I'm not an atheist, <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> so I, I believe in a universal life force, but that's not the kind that this is talking about. <laughs> <laughs> this is talking about something that is a little bit more controllable by an individual with instruments or manipulative not necessarily the people but the the property itself is supposedly manipulative and um the idea of anti-entropy is just absolutely bonkers so (laughs) let me just say that right now um so what what does anti-entropic mean it means that so entropy is disorder and it is the natural state of the universe. The universe will always tend towards greater and greater disorder. Um, but the properties of orgone are that they create organization in nature. So absolute bullshit, uh, in other words. So <laughs> this man, Wilhelm, Wilhelm Reich, 
He is an Austrian-American psychoanalyst, born in 1897, died in 1957. And I was shocked to see that just like real photographs of this person and his experiments exist. Because at first I was like, oh, I'm going to see some really funny illustrations. Like, <laughs> no, it was like smacked in the face with modern photography. And I was like, no. No, why? <laughs> My soul died. Smacked in the face with modern photography. <laughs> Put that on a shirt. <laughs> That's like a really abstracted way of saying he sent me a dick pic. Smacked <laughs> 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 in the face. Modern photography. <laughs> oh my god! The only, the only good thing about living in an era before photography was that you did not receive random dick pics unless they had the audacity to draw their member <laughs> and post it to you. Which I would be furious if that happened. I'm thinking Bridgerton era, like Bridgerton. Uh, era when they get their little postcards delivered and they open them up. You just open it and instantly crumple it up. <laughs> oh, oh my. <laughs> anyway, so Wilhelm Reich invented something called the Cloud Buster. Oh, that's a good name. It is a good, I do agree. It is a good name. It's, it's in fact such a good name that Kate Bush made a song about his life. Really? And yeah, she Bush. called it Cloudbuster. Yeah. She's she's so fucking awesome. Um but the 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 purpose of a cloudbuster, it so basically what you would imagine is these like hollow metal pipes. So it would kind of look like an organ, like a piano organ. Mm -hmm. These hollow metal pipes connected to some kind of mass of electrical cords. And then you submerge them underwater. I, this is so dangerous. Um, you put them underwater. And the idea is that um, in the same way that like lightning needs kind of like a conduit to reach the earth, this would be a conduit for primordial cosmic energy. Oh, and that primordial energy. Primordial cosmic energy, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're all nodding along. Like yeah. I know, I know you're with me. I really am nodding. <laughs> Give me both. Um, the idea is <laughs> this energy exists more abundantly underwater for some reason. Oh, so you get more of it. Um, so it's a lightning rod, but for orgone energy, and. Um, one of these sort of contraptions actually still exists in Maine. Really? They're pretty big. So I, I was, again, it, not just modern photography, but like a color photo of something still standing. I'm like, man, of the ones that still exist or the ones that people still use, they now fill them with crystals. So <laughs> they can also remove uh, chemtrails from the air. Oh, good. <laughs> good. 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 Reduce, wow. reuse, wow. recycle. <laughs> so do they still do the whole thing where they stick cords, electrical cords underwater? I presume they do. I I'll be I'll be honest. To so to put together my sources for this topic, I went to like five different wiki pages 
So I didn't follow that rabbit hole all the way because I was not about to click on chemtrails. Yes. <laughs> so I, wow. I too would be interested to know, especially if any of our listeners um, know, have, if you've ever gone down the chemtrail rabbit hole, I would love to know. Um, I don't remember if you said the, the Twitter before. Go ask Alice Pod. Go ahead and uh, message. Holy moly, that is a contraption. That almost looks like a gun. Yeah, it. if I came across that in the wilderness... Um, a bloody run. Yeah, I think, you know, I think I wasn't meant to survive because I'd be like, that's a really cool sculpture. I'm going to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably stand too long <laughs> looking at it. Um, but I... so. This guy, though, I did go down a sort of rabbit hole into orgone energy just to see, like, what it is. And um, one of the other contraptions that people use to harness orgone energy is this just giant. It looks like uh, a giant safe that you would just sit in. There's, like, literally the picture in the wiki article is this giant safe with just a shitty, like, chair you'd find at your grandma's house. Like no. stuck in it. A night chair. And the it's a night chair. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea is that <laughs> if you layer No. How shitty is this setup? It's just that is like, so crappy. <laughs> that chair looks decrepit. But oh if my you, God. <laughs> it looks modern and decrepit, which tells me all I need to know. Do you know what it actually looks like? I had to um for one of the jobs I do, because we, we create lightning with a Tesla coil, we have to get our ears checked to make sure we're not going deaf. Mm. Um, but when you go get your ears checked, they stick you in a little box like that and then play you noises to see if you can hear them. Okay. <laughs> this Maybe looks like... Re <laughs> repurposed cosmic energy container. Yeah. <laughs> But the, uh, this sort of contraption is supposedly layered with organic and inorganic material. So like metals and like dirt, I guess. I don't actually know. Um, and the idea <laughs> is to oh maintain the, like an orgone concentration inside the environment so that you are, I guess, in some way cleansed. And I... <laughs> I was not so shocked to see like you know, people are really trying to make a science out of this. What was absolutely crazy to me was the list of people who have used this in popular culture. Really? Hmm. Yeah. Rather than going through all the names, I'll point out the one that was most shocking to me. William S. Burroughs. Hmm. Who, who's that? Okay. <laughs> he Sorry, is, I'm um, uneducated. No, no, don't. He's kind of a contemporary writer. Um, mm -hmm. He and I, our lives have crossed paths. Our world lines have crossed asynchronously. <laughs> he shows up in my life quite a lot. Um, a lot of my spheres intersect with William S. Burroughs. So that's the only reason I know him. He had one of these and also integrated the um, chamber as part of his imagery in his novels. So he was, he was a famous novelist who um, uh, was sort of like from the beat era, like kind of before the hippies. Ooh, cool. Mm. Yeah, um, he built his own <laughs> and, <laughs> and had it in his house. Um, 
I one of these actually shows up in a music video by the Gorillas. Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I also while we're talking about beats, um, "On the Road" by Jack Kerouac um, apparently also has one. I didn't. Wow. I read "On the Road" and I don't remember uh, seeing that. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh my God. As I'm scrolling through the list, J.D. Salinger also used one. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Wow, I wonder if wow, that was wow, like wow. a manufacturer at selling them or if people had to make their own dodgy versions with some wood and some dirt in their houses. <laughs> well, apparently the, that's what William S. Burroughs did. But, you know, as I'm going back to check the list, I now see that the Institute for Organomic Science in New York is dedicated to the continuation of Reich's work, founded oh, in no. 1982. Oh, that's a little it, too late for comfort. <laughs> it's a it too publishes late. a digital journal and collects corresponding works. Wow. I believe this is still a thing. And you wanted me to go first so that you wouldn't get upset at. <laughs> 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 You know, what's really a trip is, is especially the beats, but it seems that people who took orgone or yeah, orgone energy made it super sexual. <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> but for some reason they took, they took primordial cosmic energy and animal magnetism <laughs> and just put that together and, uh, yeah, then you have the origin of all things, I suppose. So um, I think that, that sums up the human race pretty well. <laughs> yeah, Take some magic energy and make it horny. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's the foundational principle of chaos magic, I think. <laughs> chaos magic. <laughs> oh, I love it. I want to go sit in one of these boxes and see what it's like. Because maybe it's like a sensory deprivation type chamber and people have all sorts of weird and wonderful experiences in them that's a great point you know maybe that's very similar to what people experience in them and that's why they swear that it helps or it works i can't remember exactly who it was but in scrolling through somebody said that it's like going through withdrawal like the cleansing process of, of withdrawal so maybe maybe you're onto something with that yeah yeah because I really want to try one of those like little Hydra floating pods. I'm so scared to do that. You're so brave. <laughs> I Ever since I saw Lisa Simpson do it in The Simpsons, I want to do it. <laughs> yeah, the, the most realistic thing. Yeah, I have dedicated my life to trying to be Lisa Simpson in real life. I played the saxophone, vegetarian... You know, human rights and animal rights protester. I just want to be Lisa. She is the best, best human there is. Oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> that is sweet. <laughs> I like that. Drew, have you ever done sensory deprivation? I feel like you would. I am tempted to. Um, Can you do it in your VR headset? Uh, <laughs> I would love to do that. That sounds great. I wonder if there is a sensory deprivation thing. That would be super fun. Um, yeah. I'm into it, but I just don't, I haven't had the opportunity to do so. Um, I don't know. I feel like it would be, I've heard bad stories about sensory deprivation where it just like, it messes with your head and you like hear your heartbeat and hear the blood oh. flowing through your veins and 
it's just uh i don't know that sounds like uh, a little too much <laughs> you're like yeah. i just i don't want to hear myself living <laughs> like i can just imagine every like stomach rumble would be just like a, 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 an earthquake like oh my god it's so bad. <laughs> now for a brief edit by future Lindsay. sarah had an addendum to her story from last week and i was supposed to insert it at the beginning of the episode well i forgot here is sarah's story um what was your story sarah oh it was related you can insert this into the when we're talking about question of the week um so last week's question of the week i said that my irrational fear was a spider crawling up my leg um i've now revised and decided that my irrational fear is now the elevator like when you step into an elevator it dropping before you step into it um and I say this because I had a spider crawl up my leg last week on a walk and it wasn't as horrifying as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so I've reevaluated my life. Reevaluated it. Yeah. But I had a big a big old little huntsman um on my leg and it was real quick because Simon was trying to like bat it off and we were walking Lucy and Lucy just did not even notice that I was being attacked by a creature. Um, so but, so you had you, you like had a spider on your leg and you were like mm, this isn't as scary as elevators exactly i was <laughs> like actually i think i would be more terrified if an elevator dropped before i stepped onto it because we have to go in an elevator every day in our apartment and i always think of that when i step in i'm like don't drop oh okay that's my worst fear is like you know when you step into an elevator and like if the whole cart drops down when you're in between like the outside and the inside of the elevator oh i thought it was just the elevator dropping out from no no like if you're in between it like splits you in half (laughs) (laughs) it's just dark like how did you even come up with this i've been scared of elevators all my life and i can't believe i forgot about it Oh my god, that's a good fear. That's now now I'm afraid of that. <laughs> well, I googled and it's never happened in Australia, so I feel pretty safe. So yeah, I ended up on vaccine hesitancy, uh, which I felt was very applicable currently, mm-hmm. but really wanted to. So so what I actually really wanted to get into was I wanted to dive into the history of vaccine hesitancy and okay. see how old this problem is compared to the age of vaccines. And I also really wanted to know who started the movement and why. So that's really where, where I dug on the, the Wikipedia page because there's tons of information about like... Yeah, name and shame you know, the d- assholes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted to do. Yes, I'm keen, Drew. Oh. Yes. So as I normally do, let's define what vaccine hesitancy is. <laughs> so vaccine hesitancy <laughs> is the delay in acceptance or refusal, complete out refusal of vaccines despite the availability of the vaccine services. So this umbrella... Big old umbrella covers everything from outright refusing the vaccine to delaying vaccination to not accepting the vaccine but doubting its efficacy, down to using certain vaccines while refusing others. So it has a really wide definition of uh, hesitancy, which Mm. I just found very interesting. Mm. So the influencing factors that produce vaccine hesitancy are the lack of proper scientific knowledge, Mm -hmm. which is the A number one thing, just like 100%, not 100%, but most of what happens for vaccine hesitancy is just not proper scientific knowledge. Mm. Two is not understanding how vaccines are made or how they work. Mm -hmm. Three is complacency. Four is convenience. And the last is fear of needles. 
So oh. <laughs> fear of needles feels like a legitimate fear. Whereas yeah. there's no reason to be ignorant in the 21st century when we have abundance of experts and knowledge at the ready to go, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Because the <laughs> do, do you remember when the when the pandemic when they started um, giving out COVID nineteen vaccinations? There was this tweet that went viral. It was a vaccine, uh, an anti vaxxer I guess. And they're like, why can't they just give us little bits? You know, just a mild form of COVID, so our body can naturally build immunity. And someone <laughs> had retweeted it, been like, wow, they almost invented vaccinations with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. That's yeah, so good. I love that we've all seen that tweet. Like, that's kind of amazing. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so prolific. It's so it great. is. It's like, wow, they almost, they were almost onto something there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. So let's start out by saying that the overwhelming scientific consensus is that vaccines are safe and effective. That's mm -hmm. just like the overwhelming consensus on vaccines is that they're safe and effective and that vaccine hesitancy results in disease outbreaks and preventable deaths. So vaccine hesitancy is a very bad thing. Mm -hmm. And it's so bad that World Health Organization has characterized vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 global health risks. Wow. Or health threats, sorry. So. Y'all get that? It's a serious problem. Y'all get that? Do y'all get that? <laughs> Jim Baker. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to acknowledge a few things before I really started blasting vaccine hesitancy because I feel I feel like this is kind of left out a little bit. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge that the medical field has a history of discrimination and has a lot of unethical, not a lot, but has had unethical behavior in the past that has hurt people's belief in the system. Mm. And I acknowledge that some medications have come out and they've been completely unsafe, such as thalidomide, mm -hmm. which also reduces the trust in both medicine and medication in general. And I don't know if, do you two know what thalidomide is? Mm -mm. Was that the, it was marketed as a morning sickness pill? Yes. <gasps> yes. And yes. Um, and it wasn't safe to use when, um, for expecting mothers because it, it caused birth deformities and defects. Oh, like really bad birth yeah. defects. Because oh. all of the trials were done on non, pretty much non-pregnant peoples, um, and a lot of the time, uh, genetically male, male yes. what? participants. Yes, yeah. which actually is a bit of a problem. Um, if, is that drug trials tend to be done on, on Caucasian male. men, yep. um, because yep. it's it's easier to limit. Again, what what uh, Lindsay was saying with you need to have a control. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. uh, men, especially white Caucasian men, because they are so well studied, tend to be a very good control, especially with females with, we have, you know, an insane amount of different hormones happening at any given time. And when you're doing a drug trial, you can't just snap your fingers and have every female in the trial be synced up hormonally or, um, oh. yeah, it's, it's really difficult, but yeah. then it leads to to things that are sometimes drawbacks, whether it be, you know, adverse side effects or there's actually, there's a really great book. It's called, um, Invis I think it's called Invisible Women. Um, but they talk about a lot of the time medications, which didn't uh, show significant, um, you know, uh, 
good like things. Effects? Yeah, didn't yeah. didn't work significantly well in the trials on men. Actually, tend to be um, there's a, there's some of them, not all of them, but some have shown to be really efficient with females as well. And so it's this idea that they could be missing medications which would work on a certain set of the population. Um, that are genetically female because it wasn't shown to be as effective on men. Um, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating, but mm-hmm. it's not a, like it's 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 not great. But it, yeah, it's not it's not the end of the world. <laughs> if that makes sense. But, yeah, yeah, no. It, but I I fully acknowledge that these things that I've listed really have not left the minds of a lot of people. Um, who have been affected with these issues in medicine, where I, so this I feel like is a kind of justification for a little bit of vaccine hesitancy, where you don't want to be a lab rat because, you know, in the past, the medical field has had a little bit of a history of, of treating people like lab rats. And I feel like that's a, a legitimate, not legitimate, but I feel like that's a, um, it's an understandable fear. Yeah, an understandable fear within within people. Yeah, but I think what people don't understand is the amount of effort that does go into lab trials nowadays in the 21st century. Um, yes. There's lots of different constraints and modeling as well. So like even if they they do have an all male participant list, they try to model it on different metabolic rates and things that might happen and things like this. So they they do the best that they can. Yeah. And, you know, the FDA, I said, the FDA does a very good job of ensuring that vaccines are safe with a high rigorous scientific standards of efficacy and safety. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's, that's kind of what, you know, we're trying to say here is that the FDA does a pretty damn good job. And uh, peer review. Important. Yeah. So making yeah, sure that, absolutely. that people in the field that are not part of the same team approve and, and come to the same consensus, which I feel like does not happen for misinformation on the internet. does not (laughs) and of course uh, none of us are medical doctors Sarah's a doctor but (laughs) I'm not a medical Um, doctor do not take my advice yeah so our our all of our advice and all of the things we've said should be taken with a grain of salt but I really think the achievements in vaccine technology should not be overlooked I think we've done a very good job in regulating and um, manufacturing standards have you know made vaccines very safe at this point and I feel like that's kind of uh, uh, something that really shouldn't be overlooked. So finally, to end off my initial rant about vaccines, let's just get this out on the table. Vaccines don't cause autism. Like, seriously, yeah. <laughs> seriously. The study that linked vaccines and autism has been debunked and discredited countless of times over. Like, mm-hmm. countless times over. Yeah. And, like, the theor- they theorize causal link between vaccines and autism can be attributed to the schedule in which vaccines are administered and the normal diagnostic timescale for, ta- for autism. So just because they happen at the same time doesn't mean that they're all linked. It yeah. just, they happen at the same time. It just, that's what happens. Yeah, and coincidence so just, is not correlation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, it was just believed that there was this link between the two, and, and that was written up as scientific evidence. And it was, you know, the study was very flawed, and the opinion, it was, it was basically just opinions, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, much, much, much greater evidence is needed to establish a causal link between two things. And so it's just, we just have to say it. Vaccines don't cause autism. Like, it, there's no link to it. Even published studies that, you know, we see now they only establish correlations between things and mm-hmm. not causation. And this was saying that vaccines cause autism. And that was just like oh my God. studies, <laughs> studies it's struggle so with unsound. that. 
Yeah, exactly. And so one of the things that I really want to do is I know, you know, correlation is not causation gets thrown around a lot. And so I wanted to kind of define what correlation and causation actually are, because I feel like that, as I said, gets thrown around a lot, but no one really defines it and no one really like, mm. you know, gets into it so much. Um, so do you two actually have any examples of correlation versus causation? Just kind of putting you on the spot right now. There is, I think, a really funny website about this, and I'm probably going to misquote it, but it would be things like the rate of car accidents increasing with the making of Nicolas Cage movies. Yes, yeah, there's a website <laughs> that overlays plots um, that it looks like they are coincident, but they're two completely different things. Right, so if you saw that there was an increase in movies with Nicolas Cage in them and an increase in car accidents and you just put them on the same plot, it would look like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, Nicolas Cage is causing the car crashes. Or that <laughs> car crashes are causing people that need to heal th through Nicolas Cage <laughs> We media. love Nick Cage. <laughs> but I, I don't know if that, if that passes your theory Yes, tester. that does, 100%. <laughs> yes. Well, the, the correlation example that, that, I, uh, that I looked up and saw was very funny because it, it, it kind of was a callback to Sarah's topic about uh, plague doctors, where it was, <laughs> you know, germs cause disease and also cause bad smells, but bad smells and disease aren't linked. Oh, They're correlated, but not linked. They don't, yes. There's not a causal link That's there. That's a great connection. That is so good. <laughs> so that was just like my little think uh, like little think piece on uh, on correlation versus causation. So anyway, that's enough about me ranting about vaccines. So let's talk about history now. Woo. Um, so let's begin with smallpox. Okay. So early attempts to prevent smallpox involved deliberate inoculation with a less severe version of the disease. Mm -hmm. So this was originally known so this was originally known as inoculation but soon became known as variolation to avoid confusion with the cowpox inoculation. Mm. So so variolation has been used uh, a long time in China and India, but was first introduced to North America and Europe in 1721. Wow. So Reverend Cotton, yeah, right? That's <laughs> so much earlier than I thought it was going to be. Really? Really? Yeah. Well, this is this is variolation versus vaccination. Okay, cool. But it, yeah. But even the idea that they had a, a mild understanding of the um like the body's ability to have an immunity against things or to to slowly build up the right type of immunity cells mm -hmm. that's so cool i don't know if they understood that i think they may have just been like this goes in person and they don't get sick anymore i don't think yes, it's a <laughs> probably probably <No>. that <laughs> <laughs> so reverend cotton mather introduced variolation to massachusetts during the smallpox epidemic at the time and despite strong opposition within the community, so even then, even before like vaccines were a thing, people were against like variolation and inoculation. So it started even before vaccines. So Mather was able to convince a doctor, Zabdiel Bolston, to try the variolation. And Dr. Bolston tried the variolation on his child, his slave, and his slave's son, with each individual contracting the disease for a short period of time, but then the disease vanished after, all, after they, and they were no longer ill. So he later went to variolate thousands of people, and soon after, Lady uh, Mary Worthing Montague introduced variolation to England, which led to many successful variolations, with, each, with even the Princess of Wales receiving a variolation without mishap. So this led to the process of variolation becoming commonplace. 
So that's just variolation in a nutshell. And wow. uh, now we move a little bit more towards vaccination, but um, there was first quite a bit of oppo opposition from the start of variolation and inoculation. So uh, religious arguments against inoculation were put forward in 1772. A sermon was delivered by the English theologian, Reverend Edmund Messier, called the dangers of sinful the dangerous and sinful practice of inoculation where he oh argued that disease was sent by god to punish sin oh. and that any attempt to prevent smallpox oh. was inoculated <laughs> via inoculation is a diabolical operation and i quote that it's a diabolical operation imagine oh, that come on <laughs> how can i side mild side tangent how can anyone who if you believe if you believe in your god and you think your god is literally killing people and giving them miserable lives to test their faith what a shitty god to believe in what a dickhead <laughs> if he has the power not to maybe let's not <laughs> you, you know have, you have hit on the central belief that helped me become an atheist <laughs> you have hit on the central belief what a shitty god Okay, that's yeah. <laughs> apology corner for Christians later. That's just why I <laughs> traded religions. <laughs> Wait, I'm going to find a different one. <laughs> I'm going to find a different <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, this is, why I'm a this is why I'm agnostic. I'm like, nah. No if someone's need. out there doing it, I don't like them. I don't want to be their friends. <laughs> So at the time, preachers actually published their sermons to reach a wider audience, which is how Massey's sermon reached, the, reached North America. And um. early religious opposition was forming in North America, and this sermon just added fuel to the fire. So two individuals are known for their opposition to inoculation. Both John Williams and William Douglas uh, really helped to get the anti-inoculation movement started. And Douglas, being a medical graduate, really helped lend credence to the movement. So because they had this medical graduate who was just like, oh, inoculation's bad and you know, sinful and a diabolical operation, this really led credence to the, the, the anti-vax, well, not anti-vax movement at this point, but the anti-inoculation movement. So then, now we move on to vaccines. So once Edward Jenner introduced the smallpox vaccine in 1798, variolation um, de declined and was banned in most places as it was not as safe as vaccination. So the difference, between variolation and vaccination is variolation was literally taking a live version of the of the disease um, but like a milder version of it and infecting mm -hmm. someone with that and versus vaccination is you know you're heat killing the disease you're doing something to the disease to to prevent it from actually being active or alive and that is what you're injecting so that the body you know is able to build up an immunity to it but doesn't really have a chance of being infected by it so that's kind of the difference between the two of them, and that's why variolation is not really, um, it was sort of banned uh, pretty soon after because vaccination was just so much safer. Mm -hmm. But vaccination ran into the same religious opposition as variolation, uh, where famous, famously William Rowley published illustrations of deformities allegedly produced by vaccination, and Benjamin Mosley linked cowpox vaccine to syphilis, which started a contro controversy that would last into the 20th century. So oh my god, well, if... Yeah, go on. I can't. I, sorry, I was just speechless and let out some noises. <laughs> <laughs> just, I can't believe it. 
Yeah, so even right as vaccines were put, like, were created, people were opposed to it and were saying that it causes these deformities and it causes, like, syphilis. And they had so many of these different things that they were just like, well, it causes this and that. And it, it's, it's awful. And, you know, I hate to say it, but it also feels like we're looking in a mirror right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, from the past, like, we just learned nothing from our history. What do they say about that thing about history? repeating itself yeah Yeah. exactly but i will say there were some legitimate concerns from supporters of vaccination about the early safety and efficacy of the actual vaccinations that they were producing because there were no you know there were no standards there were no you know governing bodies that were saying the vaccine has to be this way Um, basically vaccines were developed before sterile laboratory methods were put in place to control Mm -hmm. production of vaccines so vaccines were produced in non-sterile environments and identification of potential pathogens in vaccines was not available until the late 19th century to early 20th century. So diseases that were later shown to have come from contaminated vaccines were tuberculosis, tetanus, and in some cases syphilis, which is awful. All of them were awful, but um, syphilis was a very rare, um, not very rare, but syphilis was a very rare when it came from vaccines um, because it was around 750 cases out of 100 million vaccinations can be attributed or, or syphilis can be attributed to vac- like tainted vaccines but those 750 cases attracted particular attention so once again uh, i hate to make this i hate to make this like comparison but the you know the the j&j blood clot scenario is very very rare but it's it's drawn particular attention because it's just like a, a really bad side effect so mm. you know it's it's you see this happening again where just because the vaccine causes this or, or cause the syphilis or cause the blood clots people are like latching on to that and really magnifying it even though it's a very rare occurrence so i just i just found that very interesting that the the same kind of you know techniques and and uh yeah. and methods i guess uh for discrediting vaccines are being used in the past and now so i just it's it's a little sickening, but you know that's it's just. Kinda just yeah. It's some. It's. I feel like it says something about human nature in in a weird yeah. way. Like yeah, or or maybe just the idea that like I think bad news spreads faster than good news. Yeah. I I don't know. Like I think that just kind of people in general have this kind of like sick desire to be like depressed or disappointed. It's kind <laughs> of like I don't know. It's instead of just being like holy shit, we've got a vaccine. Like, it's like, you know, the end of all the problems. I feel like people will dig for something wrong with yeah. it and, like, amplify that instead. You want to you feel even worse? Because <laughs> I got more. <laughs> oh. So yeah. another perceived problem with vaccines was that there were breakthrough cases of smallpox when people were vaccinated. And these mm. breakthrough cases were very mild and occurred years after the vaccination, but were used to discredit vaccines as a whole. So they're mm-hmm. saying that because there's breakthrough cases, the vaccine doesn't work. It's not, it's ineffective. It's dangerous. Like don't ever use it. And so basically the exact same thing is happening right now where we're having these breakthrough cases and people are saying, oh, the vaccine doesn't work. And it's, it's just, it's a little incredible how, how mirrored this is to current times. Yeah. People have this idea that if a vaccine should stop something a thousand percent, which yeah. isn't the case, it's your body help, you know, knowing what the in the virus or the the disease is going to do to the body so it can prepare and and give the right antibodies to it yes 100 percent. which is why we don't see as many people dying 
now, or at least in mm-hmm. Australia, we've had a huge boom in COVID cases. But statistically, there's less people in hospitals and less people dying because the vast majority of the population are now vaccinated. Yeah. Mm. And so most of the COVID cases are considered, you know, mild to medium. They're not, they're not as severe as they would have been, yeah. which is what you want. You want people to be able to survive yeah, 100%. The, the, the virus. Another funny thing, when legislation in England was introduced to make vaccines compulsory, that's when real problems began. Uh. <laughs> so <laughs> so the, the 1840 Vaccination Act uh, banned variolation in England and made, but did introduce free voluntary vaccinations for infants. However, the 1853 Act introduced compulsory vaccinations with fines levied at those who did not comply and imprisonment for non-payment of those fines. Basically, England cracked down really hard on the willingness to take the vaccine. So, you know, they, they made it compulsory. Mm, um, right. And they had... Well, it's like the opposite of what they're doing now. <laughs> well, just wait. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so local enforcers of this law uh, were elected to the town. And so what people would do is they would elect um, local enforcers who believed that vaccines were bad. And so the local enforcers <gasps> wouldn't enforce the mandates anymore. But then oh. in 1871, uh, specific acts were put into place that the enforcers had to act. And so I just found that very interesting that, that mm. people tried getting to worm their way around it. And uh, they, they just couldn't because this new act put it in place that they had to work, that the, that the enforcers had to enforce the law. So uh, this is when organized protesters really started against vaccines. And then the 1898 Vaccination Act caved to the protesters slightly by allowing for exemptions. But these exemptions were very, very hard to come by because you had to get like two magistrates signatures on it. And it was very hard to, you know, get the, the two magistrates so finally, in 1907, exemptions only required a signed declaration, but the anti-vax movement wanted more, and they wanted these mandates to be completely removed because they were still okay. enforceable by law, and so you had to get this exemption or, you know, you could be punished. But at this point, the, the, the compulsory vaccination was very, very, you know, watered down. It, you know, it was pretty easy to get a signed declaration stating that, that you're exempt from the vaccine. So... I just, it's, it feels so really modern sh- <laughs> again, <laughs> you know, yeah. it feels so modern, but that's, that's kind of what happened. And so after a visit in to New York by a prominent British anti-vaxxer, William Tebb, the Anti-Vaccination Society of America was founded. Um, no. the, new, <laughs> the, <Society. laughs> the New England Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League was formed in 1882. The Anti-Vaccination League of New York City was formed in 1885. And basically the same tactics were used in the U.S. that were used in England. So the vaccinations were regulated by state, um, similar to what occurred in England. So vaccine policy moved from compulsion to opposition to repeal. And that's, that's just how it went, where they would be compulsory first, and then there would be huge amounts of opposition to it, and then they'd go into repealing it or just weakening it so it's just like, oh, you can be exempt pretty easily. So Damn. finally, the, the vaccine controversy reached the U.S. Supreme Court in 1905 with vaccination against small, uh, with um, the case Jacobson versus Massachusetts, where the court ruled that states have the authority to require vaccination against smallpox during a smallpox ep- epidemic. And so John Pickren, the very wealthy founder of the, uh, the Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company, became the, ma- the main financier of the American anti-vaccination movement. Fuck. So on... Oh. <laughs> 
So on March 5th of 1907, he delivered a speech to the Committee of Public Health and Sanitation of Pennsylvania, harshly criticizing vaccines. And he also sponsored the National Anti-Vaccination Conference, which led to the creation of the Anti-Vaccination League of America. Oh, my God. So finally, Stop. the worst part, the worst part, he was appointed to the Pennsylvania State Vaccination Commission, where he greatly opposed the current vaccination policies and just fought the entire time so that they really couldn't establish any sort of like vaccination rules because he just kept on fighting it. And he remained a staunch opponent of, of vaccination until his death in 1916. And you know what? I really hope. Why? Why was he so <laughs> against it? Wait, I don't know. He lived 11 more years. <laughs> he only lived 11 more years. And I really hope he died of preventable disease. <laughs> God. I really hope so, because that would be poetic justice. That would be poetic justice. I don't understand why people are so, like, vehemently against something that could help you. It's like people being furious about wearing seatbelts or yet masks like it's, yeah i don't understand like it's the smallest thing you can do and yeah. it doesn't hurt like statistically it most likely will not cause any adverse effects to you whatsoever yeah 100 percent. that's that's what I it is don't understand it doesn't it doesn't actually make sense that's the that's the problem that where you're expecting reasonable actors but you are getting unreasonable actors and therefore <laughs> it's just like your whole model like, goes out the window yeah, or like people, it's driving me insane lately. Masks are back mandated in the state that I live in, which is fantastic, except you see bumheads walking around with it sitting below their nose. Yeah. And I'm like, why are you even bothering? Like, put it over your nose. Come on, it's not that. It's not that hard. <laughs> no, it's Sarah fine. Here. It's fine. <laughs> But just from all of this, I just thought the, the tactics and beliefs really haven't changed since the original organizations of the anti-vax no. movement. They haven't changed. I just, 300 it, years later, here we are. 300 years later, here we are. The anti-vax movement hasn't changed at all. Uh, you know, it still uses religious reasons to not take the vaccine. It's, it's just the whole, the whole thing is, is just garbage, and I hate it. But <laughs> that's just it. Um, but I found this, this just very interesting to how similar our current situation is compared to the past. And we really just haven't learned from history. That's like so much more bleak than I thought it was going to be. I really, it's like, in some ways, I was holding out a little bit of hope that was dashed to pieces because like thinking back to the Spanish flu, that was, yeah. mm. that was something that people really compared the coronavirus to for a while. I'm sure people all remember. Um, and I at first was like, you know, whatever happened to that old timey patriotism, like, you know, before cell phones, when everyone was just living in the moment, <laughs> you know, and people were like, <laughs> let's take care of each other. Like, I'm so proud of all of my opportunities and people were just better. And then I hear this and I'm like, oh, we've always been the same. We've always been <laughs> shitty. <laughs> Like, I can't even put rose-colored glass. Like, you know, it, it's... I, I think I, I looked back on those times in my own, like, head canon and was like, oh, yeah, they all got vaccinated back then. Like, everybody just did what was right. And we weren't all, like... I don't know. But I, for some reason, I do blame social media in the... Like, it's mm. great that it gives everybody a voice, but it's also terrible in that it gives everybody a voice. <laughs> because it's like some people have really bad ideas and then those <laughs> ideas spread. And, like... <laughs> I couldn't help but think, like, you know, 
if uh, anti-vax, like non-science spread faster because of social media. Like there was just a part of me in my own mind that just blamed the spread of false information on how readily available it was. Yeah. Well, there's definitely got to be some kind type of contributing factor. But so I always, I always get a giggle, like the idea of bad information on the internet and just nut jobs spreading whatever bullshit they want. Yeah. It's like if you were on the street and you saw some crazy yelling down the street, like standing on a box, throwing things at people, yelling about, you know, vaccines of this, vaccines of that, or whatever, you know, having a good rant, like just spewing the stuff that you know someone might spew online in person i would hope that most people would be like damn that ain't normal that is that where's your citations sir and then not listen to it but i feel like online it's easier to come across as a credible person i guess i I just think you have to present something in a professional manner and as soon as you present something in a professional manner it just like it's so much more believable like you just mm. have to seem, you just have to have the confidence and seem like you're right, and then people will believe that you're right. And I think it's just like that's that's that just fake what. Fake it till you make yeah, it. Yeah, fake it till you make it, and it's you know for some people it's not even faking it; they really believe it. So you know it's it's just, I think that's what really contributes to it is just like, it's so easy to seem professional and so easy to seem like informed, but <laughs> you're not. That's a problem. <laughs> I kind of no, miss not. the memes that were like, if you do X, don't worry about what's in the vaccine. Like, if you eat chicken <laughs> yes. nuggets, don't worry about don't what's worry. in the vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really upsetting to know that people have just always been... I'll say it both ways. It's, it's, ignor- it's upsetting to know people have always been ignorant, but also upsetting to know that there has always been a portion of people who have been wronged by authority that's supposed to be looking out for them, be it the government or like the medical system at large. Mm Because, you know, I think what you were saying at the very beginning, Drew, like there is a guilty party within the medical field. Yeah. And it's history. And like, I have to say that, you know, I recognizing my own bias, like I grew up always in very, very urban areas. And I think it's no secret that a lot of anti-vaxxers grew up in very rural areas. And I know that politically, people in rural areas feel as though they are overlooked and forgotten or taken for granted or taken advantage Mm. of. And so, you know, for that reason, at least in in like the U.S., a lot of rural people are very much like, I'm just going to take care of myself. I'm going to be self-sufficient fuck the government, fuck the government's involvement in my life. And so when the government comes in and tells them to do something or put something in their body, suddenly a lot of people are like, well, you've never helped me before. Like, why is, why am I suddenly important to you? And then you get theories like, you know, getting chipped and all kinds of other like weird shit, which like to us sounds ridiculous. (laughs) But I, I have to say that I, I think if I didn't grow up in a, I think if I grew up in a different culture where I was just it, for generations, it seems led to believe that, you know, this is not trustworthy or that we should just look out for ourselves because nobody else is looking out for us. Like I start to see it. Like I'm not excusing it. Like these are people's lives. Like, you know, like people are dying because other people are not vaccinated in no way. Am I excusing this? But um, I think I can understand a little bit of the mentality in mm-hmm. a way that just yeah. doesn't seem so 
out of left field. Yeah. No, 100%. Yeah, it, it's I understanding agree. it, but not like not agreeing with it, but just understanding it. And it, it's sad because, yeah, they've obviously been something has hurt them in their life or they have been mistrust with authority or some type of, you know, entity that they don't want to trust. Yes. Just even scientists. Like the idea that scientists are all in, all in cahoots. Like, well, no, we're not paid enough to have a cahoots going. <laughs> and the government barely listens to us sometimes anyway. Like, well, luckily the person I'm about to talk about <laughs> is not fucked up in my opinion. So, shall we jump into my topic this week, which is Alexander Graham Bell? Yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yes. So, what do you guys know about Alexander before I dive in? Uh, you're asking me the wrong questions, because did I pay attention in history? No, I did not. Are you serious? Uh, <laughs> yeah, 100%. Oh my I, god, he invented the telephone. I was going to say Thank light you, bulb, Lindsay. but, you know. Thank you, no! Lindsay. <laughs> Drew, exit. Yeah, well, that's fine. I wanted, <laughs> I'm kidding. I wanted Drew to go first because I also had to fact check whether or not he was a pervert. <laughs> was he? I don't think he was. No, he wasn't. But I, oh, I watched this, this Comedy Central show and there was like this episode where they where like Alexander Graham Bell was making like a weird Wizard of Oz porno. And I just like had to make sure that he wasn't actually a pervert. Editing Lindsay again. In a sick twist of fate, I was also thinking of Thomas Edison. Back to the show. Oh, my God. It turns out he's not. So <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> oh, wait. The, no, he... <laughs> the only thing I know about him is that he wanted us to answer the phone and go, ahoy, hoy. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there's something. Yeah, you're welcome. Ahoy, hoy. I think ahoy, hoy should have stayed around. I think ahoy, hoy is fantastic. So, Sarah, it seems like we don't know shit about Alexander. I would say between okay, my positive great. one and negative one fact, we know nothing. Other than okay, fantastic. <laughs> this is good. This is a clean, clean, clean slate. slate. So, we yes, we'll start with the idea that he was the person who invented the telephone. And there's probably, pro most people probably know that and probably know that there's some controversy whether he actually did, well, was the first person to invent the telephone mm -hmm. or not. Um, but we'll get to that later on because his actual life, I thought, was just fascinating. Um, and it was, uh, you know, really not what I expected. I, I guess I just kind of lumped him in with the the rest of the 20th century and the, the 19th, 20th century scientists um, that, you know, the physicists or the, the, the people who just kind of, you know, they were educated, they, they did science all their life and they... they discovered some amazing things i just kind of lumped him in with that group um but his life is so much more than just oh no sorry my microphone fell over <laughs> sorry we're back <laughs> thank you for the tea baby oh and the water thank you um no his life was so much more than just the amazing science he did he was you know a very very well-rounded human being and i think you know reading his story was kind of a refreshing in this idea of this is someone who I think we should um, admire and learn about what a lot of the time especially I guess as a woman in science you tend to hear a lot of the um, kind of male whitewashing of everything of you know you learn about you know um, 
all of the things that different different men have invented and sometimes it can get a little bit exhausting not hearing about people of color or not hearing about females who were also in that in that scope um, but with Alexander I think he really was a remarkable human being not just because he was smart just generally as a human so um, he was actually born just Alexander Bell and uh, he had um, a couple of brothers as well and so he never had the middle name Graham his two brothers had middle names um, but Alexander never had a middle name and so it wow. wasn't until he was 10 he was 10 years old and he pleaded to his father, please, I want to have a middle name just like my brothers. Oh they my got God. middle names. <laughs> yeah, Aww. why didn't I get a middle name? That's his villain backstory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just is so sweet. And so some background was he was born in Edinburgh in Scotland um, and his parents were pretty amazing. So his mother um, eventually lost her hearing. Um, but her, uh, his father was uh, kind of uh, an expert in all things to do with uh, elocution, so pronunciation, talking, as well as being able to lip read and uh, did a lot of studies for how to, how to teach um, deaf and mute people or people who were losing their hearing, um, how to teach them to, to still um, pronounce words correctly even though they couldn't hear the pronunciation Ooh. and how to lip read as well hmm. so that's what his father did he did a lot of work in that elocution so how to speak clearly and correctly and then how to transfer that to people with disabilities and and help them which i thought was amazing yeah so back to his middle name so he pleaded with his dad and he's like i want to i want a middle name and his dad was like okay you know, um, we'll give you a middle name for your for your eleventh birthday. Your gift is a middle name, and isn't that sweet? And they chose the middle name Graham, um, because his father was treating a Canadian at the time who had uh, speech impediments and who was learning how to speak clearly and get over some of some of the issues he had, and that he was a close family friend called Graham. Um, and they loved him. He was part of he was part of the family. So they gave him the middle name Graham um, to respect this man. Aww, isn't that sweet? I love sweet. that. Yeah, I thought that was so lovely. And yeah, so as a child, so for the rest of his childhood, he was always super curious and super um, insightful for trying to understand the world around him. So. He was very interested in what his father did and very interested in helping his mother learning to cope with learning her hearing as well. So he was, um, I'll get to this later, but he was instrumental in making sure that her interaction with the world was as fulfilling as it could be. And yeah, he was basically a little inventor from a young age. He liked to problem solve and liked to understand, you know, how things work and how can we make things work. And so the first invention he ever came up with was actually to to get rid of husks around grains because his best friend and his neighbor, uh, their family had a grain mill and they would go through and do a lot of um, wheat milling. And one of the big problems was trying to remove the husks fully. And so he created at 12 years old, this little like homemade husk removing device, which was basically just rotating paddles with different um, brushes made out of nails to dehusk all of all of the grains that we're putting in, wow. and they use that for years afterwards. 
That's remarkable. Yeah. yeah, isn't that amazing? At 12 years old, and his best friend's father was so impressed with because him and his best friend came up with this idea together and worked together to do it. So impressed with them that he let them use um, one of the small uh, sheds on their land as their little invention workshop for the next years. Isn't that cute? That's oh my cute. gosh, that's great. He was also super into the art. So again, just into being curious in life. Um, and he taught himself how to play the piano and he was the family's pianist. So I love, I love those old timey movies where you would see people, you know, you'd have a dinner party and then the dedicated pianist of the family would get on the piano and play some tunes. Well, people had tea and coffee afterwards, and that was his little job. Oh. I know. Isn't he just a sweetie? <laughs> little chap. Um, yeah. And so that was one party trick. Another party trick he had up his sleeve was he was really good at doing voice tricks, and they <laughs> say it's akin to ven- uh, ventriloquism, so the idea of speaking without your lips moving. And so he would do um, tricks like that. When, when people would come over to visit his family. <laughs> God, just what a sweet <laughs> little boy. <laughs> I know. He's just so sweet. So then his mother started to lose her hearing um, when he was around 12. So that was kind of a pivotal age for him. And as she was losing her hearing, um, he wanted to really work with his father to figure out ways so she could still interact with the world around her. So she might not be able to hear what is going on um, but she could, you know, they could teach her to lip read very well so she could still be part of conversations. And he even came up with um, like a tapping, almost you can think of it like Morse code where you tap out um, letters. He came up with his own like tapping system for different words. So then when there was lots of people talking at a table, he could tap out different things to his mother so she could try keep up with the different conversations that were going on. Wait, isn't that how Helen Keller learned to... Oh my god. I'm so excited you said Helen Keller because we're going to get there. Okay, okay, Ooh. okay. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get there. Um, so, yes, he took, he took a great love to being able to help his mother as well as working with his dad with elocution. Um, and he decided to, to become more educated in this communication in general he did attend university and was interested in science as well but his family ended up uh, moving across the world to Canada and when this happened he kind of had to choose well do I stay by myself in England and continue my education or do I travel with my family because um, his family really was you know his everything he was very close to his mother Mm -hmm. and his and his brothers yeah unfortunately while they were away though his two brothers ended up contracting and dying of tuberculosis no which is just heartbreaking no Um, protect him yeah (laughs) i know so they ended up dying of tuberculosis which hit them very hard um and he ended up going back to university um but through all this he he was pretty dedicated on the idea of like continuing in his father's footsteps while while living in Canada he set up his own um like tutorage his own um place where he could help people with sign language and with elocution and pronunciation and everything like that 
um, and this is where he really began to take a focus with working with the deaf. He actually was invited to this, this prestigious school in Boston, which is still around today, that focuses on educating children um, who are deaf or hard of hearing from a very young age. And so he was invited to work with them. And, and from this, he ended up making his own, his own tutelage, his own business again. Um, but during all this time, he worked with numerous different students and, and helped them interact with the world. And one of his students was actually Helen Keller, <gasps> which... I thought it was amazing. So she came to him as a young child. She was unable to see, hear, or speak. She later said that Bell had dedicated his life to being able to figure out how to separate the things that make people estranged to each other and being able to help with this idea of like intercommunication where maybe you might not hear, you might not be able to see, but you could still communicate in one way or another. And so he continued on doing that for a while, and he actually married, hold on a second, let me just double check. Mm -hmm. I think his wife was deaf as well, but I'm just going to double check. Mm -hmm. I've lost my notes on Maybell. I've lost my notes. I'll just briefly mention her, but he used to also communicate to his wife in sign language as well, and that's actually when he died. The last thing he said to her was, he signed it to her because he couldn't speak because he was so unwell. Oh my which gosh. I thought was, isn't that lovely? Yeah. Yeah. So, so far he's just an all-round good good human. Um, and it, throughout all of this, throughout this early stage or the, you know, the, the first half of his life really, he was still fascinated with this idea of communication and like how our vocal cords even work to create sound Mm. and him and his brother when they were younger they actually built like a talking machine which was made out of um, a box that that mimicked the idea of a skull and made out of blowing air through different reeds to create things yeah (laughs) that's metal oh he was fascinated in it and this one bit which i was like oh alexander uh he (laughs) apparently also used to play with their family dog and would move the dog's <laughs> lips and play with the vocal cord, so like pressing on the dog's neck to make it say, hello, grandma. <gasps> what? You made it sound like it was going to be sexy. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> no, no, he, you know, he was very into sound and, and, I guess this led to the idea of wanting to take sound over long distances, which is where we get to the telephone. And so this was research that he'd been doing for quite a while. Um, And the whole controversy, I won't go too much into the actual invention of the telephone, but the whole controversy was that there was both him and Elijah, Elijah Gray, were experimenting with this idea of being able to take acoustic vibrations and transport them electronically. And they both submitted a pattern on the same day. Technically, um, Alicia Gray's was submitted first and uh, Bell's was submitted later that day. And Bell ended up getting granted the pattern. And what is controversial about it is that Bell was friends with someone who was on the patent board and he ended up using Gray's invention to test something in his but he never used it publicly and he never put it into his invention he used uh, Gray's idea of 
this type of this special type of transistor just to basically sanity check his own work there's a bit of controversy when it comes to that this idea of was um gray's design leaked to bell and there's so the drama that comes with that how do you mm-hmm. feel like what do you, what is your opinion sarah of that controversy I'm not sure so i read i read some good opinions on this so the idea what made um gray's transistor pattern interesting was using water to help with the vibrations um but bell had already submitted a pattern years ago um with the idea of using mercury instead of water so that liquid medium within the within the transistor setup so i I think they were both onto you know almost identical very similar things um right i'm not I, i don't know i don't know what to think but i do think that it's not like bell stole the invention had no idea how to do it and stole it i think he was just as on to the idea of this uh this tele telephone like uh, he would have come up with it himself yeah well he basically was he had his own invention and his own ideas um and it's all in the patent as well and i mean they were both submitted on the same day um and so obviously i mean depending on if there was nepotism or not but the the credence was given to bell's patent because there was i'm hoping there wasn't any nepotism but there was obviously something in it that made it more viable and more unique than the other one i'm not an expert on it and i just kind of brushed over that because i found the rest of his life more more interesting honestly yeah 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 was surprising Um, but yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. um and so with the invention of the telephone, there was obviously lots of trials and errors. And apparently the first um, prototype that actually worked, so he had his assistant, Mr. Watson, that, that would help him in his laboratory. Um, and uh, the first words that came through his telephone were, Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you. <laughs> um, and he would that's the phrase he would test into his telephone to see if Watson could hear him. Okay. Uh, and he knew it worked when Watson came and appeared behind his, like, ap- appeared next to him and was like, yeah, what's up, basically. Oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> hey there. It worked. <laughs> and just some quick fun facts about the pattern. So Bell and his partner, so he, event- he uh, initially had funding partners to help him do the research and development to get, you know, a, a working prototype in order. And after they had this working, this like minimum viable product that, you know, worked and was something that they could sell, uh, they approached Western Union and asked for $100,000 at the time to say, here, you need to, you know, if you would like to buy buy this patent, buy this invention, here you go, $100,000 done and dusted. Mm-hmm. And they said no. They said, wow, that's, you know, that's too much money. That's, you know, uh, a quote from the president of Western Union said that the telephone was nothing more than a toy. Oh. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But two years later, after it had exploded uh, and was very, very popular, the the president of Western Union said that if he could get the patent for 25 million, he would. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and by that time, the Bell Company was like, no, thank you, we're, we're sitting on a gold mine. That's embarrassing. <laughs> it is embarrassing. <laughs> so who owns the patent today? Oh, so Bell uh, Laboratories, which was I, I hope people have heard of, so lots mm-hmm. of amazing science has come out of Bell Laboratories, which is all, all thanks to um, Alexander Graham Bell. 
um, they were prolific in the 20th century with inventions and scientific discovery. I think they had nine Nobel Prizes attributed to them. Um, So they were a very, very productive research institute. And throughout the years, they've been bought out by different companies. Um, So Alexander also funded funded and founded AT&T, was one of the founding members. Yeah, so then for a brief time it was AT&T and and Bell Laboratories, and then it has been bought out by different companies um, over the years, but it's now owned by Nokia. So it's Nokia Bell Laboratories, and it's still a research institution. Wow. Yeah. So I thought I would wrap up with talking about some of the other inventions he worked on. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, because he was an inventor after all, and the telephone was just one of the inventions. Um, so there was, there was really cool ideas. So he worked on something called the photophone, and this is basically kind of a satellite dish. So the idea of communicating via light instead of via, via electronic transmissions, this was basically like radio technology, very early optical communication, um, which I thought was so, so cool. So they did this with optical light, but now we know that radio waves, which are still part of the electromagnetic spectrum, are used for this, for these long-distance communication. Um, but, he, yeah, they worked, they worked on trying to build something that would offer that type of communication. In 1880, they started to play around with that idea. He also uh, is contributed with one of the early versions of the metal detector um, through the use of induction balance within the... Uh, the actual instrument, which is so, so cool. How did he come up with so many different things to do with different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum? Uh, I think he was just a tinkerer and a genius at heart. But So what inspired him, this is is so bloody cool, what inspired him to try uh, his hand at inventing a metal detector was actually the shooting of President James A. Garfield in 1881. Really? Yeah. So they never found the bullet. I don't think they ever found the bullet that had shot him. They tried to use a metal detector to try find this this missing bullet, and they never found it. <laughs> That's a really but, creative reason to need it, though. Like, I never yeah. would have thought yeah. that was the origin. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That's mind-bloggling. Mind-blogging. Mind-blogging. Yeah. <laughs> mind-blogging. <laughs> Uh, another mind-bloggling thing might be this idea of a hydrofoil or basically kind of like a little uh, hovercraft on water (laughs) so little hydrofoils or hydroplanes yeah (laughs) so it's kind of like skimming across the top of water Um, and he he worked on that and he also worked on the bit of it that actually aids in airplanes being able to take and take off and land on water as well. So that kind of frame invention. Um, and he also dabbled a little bit in aeronautics. Just, Very cool. I want to know what his vision of the future was. Oh, I know. I'm sure he would have had the coolest vision of the future. Um, and the final thing I wanted to wrap up on was just some of his hobbies because they were more of his work inventions. Sure, <laughs> some of sure. his some of his hobbies included trying to recreate charles darwin's on the origin of species in his backyard what (laughs) (laughs) yes 
<laughs> so the idea of genetics and breeding. And so he bred and played around with, uh, I think it was yaks and goats. What the fuck? He had yaks in his backyard. <laughs> I think it was yaks. <laughs> that doesn't sound It was right. definitely goats and sheep. Definitely had goats and sheep. And he was trying, yeah. He one of the experiments he tried to do for over 30 years, 30 years he tried to do this as a hobby, was to try breed a sheep with multiple nipples that would bear <laughs> twins. What? Wait, did, it, did one of those influence the other or did he just really want it to have both? Um, really wanted to have both. So in mammals, you normally have twice as many nipples as the offspring you have so we have oh. two two nips and we normally have one baby wow that's dogs amazing. have 10 10 nipples i think and they normally have about four to six puppies yeah so you it's normally it's like this ratio and so he was playing around with selective breeding to try get a sheep with more nipples and more uh, <laughs> <laughs> more lammies which I just thought was really fun. <laughs> I learned yeah. so much in that one fact. <laughs> I'm so glad. I, I might finish on his on his last words in life, which were to Mabel, his wife. So he was dying on his deathbed um, from complications from diabetes, uh, and he was 75, so he had a he had a good a good life. And this was in 1922, so he had a, a fairly fairly long and prosperous life for that time um, and he was on his deathbed and Mabel his wife whispered don't leave me and Belle signed to her no and then lost consciousness uh, isn't that sweet <laughs> wait wait no. I, don't, I don't know if that's sweet no no. I think he was going to say something like, no, never, or something like that. <laughs> no, and then he turned no. his head away. <laughs> no. <laughs> I invented this sign language just so I could shut you down on my deathbed. No, I think he was doing it in a sweet way. He wasn't <laughs> sass on his final word. <laughs> no, get fucked. His final words were get fucked. <laughs> Don't leave me. Get fucked. <laughs> well, <laughs> you might have been annoyed um, on the day of his funeral, though, if you were on the phone. Because across continental America, they turned off all the switchbirds for a minute of silence to honor him. Oh, no. Um, but imagine, imagine if you're on like a very important phone call, it's costing you a fortune and the bloody switchboard goes off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you like need an ambulance. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Pretty awesome, though. I, yeah. had, I had so much fun reading about his life and I thought I it was just no. really fascinating yeah. and a bit of like a breath of fresh air from... You know, the the typical origin story of scientists you tend to hear. Yeah. I never knew that all of this amazing lore was, like, right packed into this guy who's not a pervert. <laughs> <laughs> not a pervert. If that's the one thing you take away, not a pervert. As always, thanks for hanging out with us, guys. Um, no doubt you learned something today because how the hell could you know all of this diverse <laughs> information? Um, if you want to... 
chat with us or just hang out with us some more, come to Go Ask Alice Pod on Twitter and Go Ask Alice Podcast. Watch me know that. Um, <laughs> TikTok and uh, Instagram. And Drew has been putting our episodes up on YouTube. So if you um, actually prefer to get podcasts on YouTube, but you've been just really kindly using something else, now you can go to YouTube. Go ask Alice Podcast. That's the one. How can you deny there Drew? <laughs> How can you deny me? <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for hanging out, guys. And we love you a lot. But most of all, we love Robin. Yeah, we love Robin. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Also, please watch those guests. I'm singing this song for Lindsay so that she can hear it later. Oh.